there folks this is wp tonic episode 112 we got a great guest here folks we got christopher hawkins from coding and we're going to be talking with chris around the really interesting subject of how you deal with those difficult clients how are you doing chris I'm doing good, really good. Oh, thanks, Chris. And I've got my beloved and patient co-host, John Locke. How are you doing, John? Doing awesome. That is awesome today, folks. So, Chris, you've you know you've got loads of um, experience in web development and design over the years. Can you give the audience a quick synopsis of your background and your experience? Sure, sure. I uh, started out in the web business in the late 90s doing big iron Fortune 500 HR apps for companies like ExxonMobil, The Gap, Goodyear, so on and so forth. Then I went out on my own. I started a consulting firm called Koji and Systems back in 2003, and we've been banging out web apps and websites ever since. Sounds great to me, folks. This guy's got a lot of experience, and um, you were doing a fantastic podcast but you've um put it on the back burner for a while is that correct isn't it chris yeah you know it's not just back burnered it's it's just done it's run its course yeah i'm sure you'll come back to it. it's in the blood now when you when you get in front of the mic it's hard to get off it i can assure you so chris we're going to be talking about in whispers how to deal with those difficult clients so I think all wars are kind of all battles in wars are won before they're even fought, really. So is that the case with, you know, difficult clients will come up, won't they? So is it really your mythologies, the, you know, your internal structures that will help deal with these situations or... You know, I'm just surmising that. Please tell us. Let's start off. Is the battle lost before it's normally even begun, as they say? Sometimes, sometimes. As uh, as as a consultant operating in this industry, I've sometimes heard people say things like, "There's no such thing as a client from hell." But I'm here to assure you, clients from hell do exist. But the tricky thing is that we often create them. And the way we do that is by entering into a business relationship with someone who may or may not know how to interact with a consultant, and then we fail to set boundaries, we fail to set expectations, and then we become resentful when the client doesn't behave in the way we wanted them to behave, even though we didn't tell them we wanted them to. Now, that said, there's the other kind of client. There are people out there that'll enter into a relationship with you as a freelancer, And they're transgressive, they're predatory, they're looking to take advantage. Those people are out there, they've been with us since the dawn of time. Once you're in a relationship with someone like that, it's it's really tough to get things back on track because they don't want things to be on track. But the other kind of client, the one who comes by their difficulty honestly, they want the project to go smoothly and so do we. So that kind of gives us some common ground that we can can work toward and and, and work from. I think that's so well put, Chris. Um, Actually, I had a bit of communication with a client yesterday and they were getting a little bit, let's say, annoyed, but I considered most of the problems were being caused by them. So maybe I didn't come across as so sympathetic. And then they told me um, the truth that they were actually getting a lot of, how shall I put it, 
they were getting a lot of grief from their supervisor and they were feeling a little bit under pressure to put it mildly so after that everything came into place um we agreed and everything's going sweet and they're entirely happy so i would say a lot of this is down to understanding the client and direct and honest communication what do you think chris Sure, I agree. It, it all boils, boils down to boundaries. And in order to create good boundaries, you've got to have good communication. We very often don't tell clients what we want. And when I say what we want, I, I don't just mean, you know, like in my heart of hearts, I want a pony. Who cares? What I mean when I say what we <laughs> oh, want. I think that's really nice, Chris. I'll give you one. Right? Um, what we want is, is, you know, square dealing. We want, um, we want things to be nice and explicit. We want the client to provide their end, hold up their end of the deal as we provide services to hold up our end of the deal. But a lot of the time, we don't tell them this. And, and to be honest, a lot of the time, we shouldn't need to say things like, gee, could you please not call me at 6 a.m. on a Sunday? But when the need arises, instead of resenting it, we need to speak up. And when our boundaries are pushed back against, at a certain point, we need to be professionals and, say, and just say no. No is a complete sentence. There's nothing wrong with telling a client no. As a matter of fact, I'll argue that there are a number of scenarios in which you do your project a whole lot of good by telling your client no. Yeah, well, it's not encouraged, really, in most things you read on the internet. You know, you read a lot, the customer is always right, don't you, Chris? Where do you think that comes from? Uh, gosh. <laughs> You know, I, I think that comes from pandering, to be perfectly frank. I think that comes from people trying to present a politically palatable face to their client. And, and you know, sometimes you've got to do that. But the bottom line is we get brought into a project to bring about some sort of, a, some sort of an end product, some sort of a, a result that wouldn't happen on its own. We are brought in because of our expertise. If our expertise later gets questioned or undermined, we absolutely must say no. We need to do X because Y. If we don't have a Y to point to, if we can't say because Y, well, then we're just guessing. We're not employing our expertise anyway, and, and that's fine. And, and many times we can and should try to use our clients as a resource. They're the domain expert on their business. We're kind of the niche expert on the aspect of their business that we're trying to improve or fix or streamline or automate or what have you. So there definitely needs to be some collaboration, but when boundaries are being pushed, I want you to work for free. No. I want you to be on call on weekends. No. Um, you know, I want you to cut your price in half. No. I want you to let my nephew be part of the development team. No. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely up definitely to Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got to make sure that the, the, the project gets done in a professional manner and, and, and according to the best practices that we know how, according to the best practices that we've been brought in for. So, yes, sometimes we've got to say no. There is a catch, though. You want to hear about the catch? Of course, Chris. Okay. There's a catch in that when we tell a client no, if it's at all possible to do so, we have to kind of find the yes that's hiding in the no. For example, we've contracted to build an app. It's got a certain set of features. The client wants a whole new feature, and they want it for free. No. But yes, we can absolutely build that feature for you, 
let's talk about scope and budgeting. But no, we're not doing it for free. So there's always some kind of a way where you can find a path to giving the client what it is they want and or what they need, but it doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of sacrificing a professional boundary. Yeah, it kind of occurred to me, I was talking to uh, actually recently done a proposal and he's got a friend that hosts the existing site and it's one of these, it's not really, I never heard of them, I don't know what their setup is, been there, done that, had my ass burnt, um, said to him, well I'm quite happy to have a chat with them but I will we'll make it absolutely clear if I'm doing this job for you and I don't think the hosting's good enough, we're hosting with somebody else. Right. That there will be no ifs, mites. As soon as I feel that they're not capable of hosting the site proficiently, I will give you a list of hosting providers that I think are reasonable and you can choose from those or somebody else but I must have the last say on their ability and that I right. say if that isn't acceptable I'm afraid we can't do business together and he looked at me and he just accepted it that's beautiful that's kind of how it should go you you were brought in to provide your best expertise and you did and your client accepted it well, yes, right. That's what we all want. He hasn't given me a check. He probably went to every oh. other web designer in Reno or whatever. But that—that's his <laughs> business, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, um, so, before um, before our live, we had a bit of a chat, and you were going to give us, um, you know, and I hate, you know, we all hate being placed in a stereotype, don't we? But we all do it ourselves. You know, we're all a bit hypocritical. But I think, it, in some ways, it is educational and helpful to give some scenarios about personality types mm. well, based on your many years of experience. So could you give us um, some kind of persona types and, and maybe different ways that you should treat them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and with pretty much all of these setting and holding boundaries is key. And a lot of us don't have that skill. We're not taught that skill, but, we can get into that a bit more later. The big one, and the one that I hear the most about from both the freelancers that I mentor, from the people that share my articles on ChristopherHawkins.com, from the people that reach out to me on Twitter, the biggest one I hear is either the slow pay or the no pay, right? This is a very, oh, see, you're already laughing. This is a very special type of client who, for whatever reason, feels entitled to simply not pay you on time, if at all. I didn't like the work. I'm not going to pay you. Um, I like the work just fine. And I know we agreed to, you know, 30-day terms, but gosh, company policy says 120 days. Things like that. Um, the check is in the mail. My boss hasn't approved your payment yet. Things like that. These often boil down to value issues. Again, sometimes you end up dealing with that transgressive person who went into it looking to take advantage of you. Those are a rarity. Thank heaven for that. But very often these are value issues. Very often they're not bowled over by the work. Um, and to be fair, a lot of these projects aren't really the kind where you can bowl somebody over. Oh, look, another five-page brochure sign. But we should always shoot for that. We should always shoot for doing the very best work we can. We should always shoot for absolutely satisfying the contract. We should always shoot for hitting our deadlines, doing everything to the absolute best of our professional ability. And if we've done that, then we've done our part. Their part is to pay us. So the no pay, the slow pay, 
That's the big one. Another one that I hear a lot of complaints about, and it's almost the polar opposite of this, it's the radio silence, right? You've got this client, and it's always an urgent project, right? It's got to get done in three weeks. And they've paid you a deposit, and everything looks okay until you need some feedback, until you need approvals to move on to the next phase of the work, right? And then you hear nothing. Crickets. Yes, and you email them again, and you call them and leave a voicemail. Crickets. And you email one more time. Crickets. Yes. Sometimes this is also a slow pay scenario, but very often it just randomly happens in the middle of a project phase. And I get why it happens. Very often what might be our biggest client, our most important project, is just one of 25 things that this poor person at the client side is dealing with. So sometimes the priority of our project falls down a little bit, but as professionals, it's up to us to be an advocate for the project. And as business owners, it's up to us to be an advocate for our own business. So if it's driving the project off track, it can't stand, and we need to stay after it. And then another one, this one's my personal favorite, is the art director. Uh, I am not a designer, but I do employ designers. Uh, John, I believe, does more, a lot more design than I do. He's probably smirking right now. Um, the art director is that client where either they or somebody in their department or, again, the fabled nephew wants to micromanage the design of the site from everything from color choice to layout to font size to the... I mean, what was that meme uh, years and years and years ago? Can you make the logo bigger, right? There's a reason those things are funny because they're true. They happen. We all know people who have had these things happen to them. They've happened to me. And uh, generally speaking, although these clients are well-intentioned, and in some cases they, they may have you know valuable things to contribute, but in some cases the way that personality type is executed, the way it's injected into the project, it just serves to muck up the works and make the project more difficult for everybody. Yeah, I think you've upset John because he's left the room, actually, Chris. But I think he'll, when he's recovered, he'll come back. Actually, I think he's. Uh, I think he's shedding a tear about all the art directors. I do think. I think you was the thing you were saying there. Um, I think also another one I've come across is death by committee. Have oh, you, have you yes. come across? Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, you know, there are always indecisive clients out there, and I, I totally understand why. It, it all comes down to risk, right? They hire us to build, say, an HR app to manage their human resources operations. They hire us to build whatever kind of an app they want to sell to consumers or to build a website or to, to streamline their internal services. These things represent risk. They're putting in a certain amount of money and time and effort. And in return, they're looking to see some sort of a benefit. This is frightening. It's very frightening. And I think sometimes we forget that. You know, we're sitting here at our desk. We've got our little pipeline of leads we're thinking, gosh, just, you know, just sign the deal and send the check already and we'll get to work. Let's do this. Forgetting that to these folks, if they roll the dice on us and we screw up, they get fired or their business craters, or at the very least they lose their investment. Now, if everything goes well, fantastic. Everybody's eating lobster. So these clients will sometimes get bogged down in endless levels of management, endless levels of approval, endless levels of maybe this or maybe that. That's very tough to do. Um, if you're disconnected from the process, if your point of contact is not the person who has ultimate authority over greenlighting the project, that can leave a freelancer in a really, really weak position. We just can't exert a lot of influence over the process that way. That's why I've started uh, using paid discovery projects, uh, discovery engagements at the beginning of a project, 
it helps to get in the room with the actual stakeholders. It helps to hear their actual concerns. It helps to hear the things that they're actually worried about so that we can address them directly and be part of the process rather than just being some disconnected entity on the other side of a phone that isn't being picked up. Mm. I think that's great. Um, can you, um, obviously you've been in this business for a long time, Chris. Can you maybe quickly talk about one um, project you did quite a while ago when you were maybe learning the ropes, not to the extent you know now, that on reflection you made some fundamental mistakes. Would you like oh, maybe okay. something comes to that you and you on reflection you learned from it? Um, probably my first 20 projects as a consultant, I made some form of an error or another. Let me go down the list. Um, letting somebody beat me down on my rates for fear of losing the work, right? Oh, let's see. Um, comping work, right? We contract to do X amount of work. I give them X times two and the rest of it's not, not for any kind of a charge which is a really weird thing. Nobody would ever think of going to the grocery store and waiting until all their items have been rung up and then say, oh, wait, I want to add this head of lettuce, but I don't want to pay for it, right? But for whatever reason, they don't think much of asking. Well, you could do that, but you'd get a big boot up your backside, wouldn't you? They would say no, because they have boundaries. They're professionals, right? Um, Gosh, the art director thing. You know that thing about the nephew being part of the dev team? That actually happened to me, and I actually went along with it to my eternal chagrin and, and my, my infinite embarrassment. Um, that was bad news. That was bad news. Mm-hmm. Outsourcing to the most better. Oh, there's another one. That was on me, though. That wasn't the client. Uh, I mean, you name it, and I've, I've made the mistake. I've put up with the radio silent people. Uh, I've put up with the no pay, the slow pay. I've put up with the, uh, the blackmailer. You know? uh, I'm not going to give you your, your, your payment for the first phase until you get started on the second phase. Right. I mean, I've dealt with it all. It's it's you know, it's it's embarrassing, really. It's embarrassing. The first probably three years of my consulting career. Absolute embarrassment. I'm amazed that I managed to take home a single dime. Yeah. And I don't actually that is not unusual. Um, I was thinking, um, yeah, I I actually think that's why I feel a lot of um, freelancers get out of freelancing after two to three years, because that is not that untypical. Well, that was great, folks. So um, we're, we're, pi- we're pictured here really dark and dismal. Very English, isn't it, folks? But when, uh, when we come back from our break, my co-host will be taking over the interview. And uh, I'm sure it will become sunshine, unicorns and light. Not the dismal darkness that I've been discussing. We have a very cheerful Chris. Um, we'll be back in a minute, folks. Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno-Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. We're um, coming back, folks, and uh, my beloved co-host, John, who's been waiting patiently, will take over. Go on then, John, take over. Be light and unicornish. Well, we'll see. Uh, Chris, so you you mentioned like the first three years you were consulting, you made all the mistakes and, you know, and I think a lot of freelancers make those same mistakes, but 
is there a way for them to is there a way for freelancers and consultants to avoid making those missteps early in their career uh, or is it typical for them to just have to learn those things the hard way? You know, I, I think both of those things are true, actually. I think it's extremely difficult to have to learn those lessons the hard way, but I also think that it's possible to avoid the worst of it as a first-timer. The big thing, and again, I keep coming back to boundaries and expectations. That's all fine, but I can think of more than one occasion when I was just starting out where it came down to, I have a project in front of me with a client whose behavior is already problematic before we've even started. I've set out expectations. They're clearly not willing to meet them. But if I don't take this job, I don't make my mortgage. It's as simple as that. I will never tell a freelancer that if it comes down to, say, survival, just flat survival, food on your plate, and your own professional boundaries, I will never tell a freelancer to choose their boundaries if it's truly a scenario like that. The trick is figuring out when it is and when it isn't. And I, I think when we're starting out, we're prone to fear. We're in completely uncharted territory. So we think that every deal could be the last deal. I think the first step is to understand that there's always another deal. I know that sounds glib. I know that sounds glib, and somewhere there's a freelancer who's struggling, and they're watching this, and they probably resent the hell out of me for saying that. But that is the truth of it, and that's a hard one truth, because there were many times when I found myself mired in the middle of a nightmare project only to have another lead pop up, a lead who was happy, and had a budget, and was cooperative, and was really excited about working with me, and I couldn't take it. And that just killed me. So I, I think the first thing is to just realize whatever you're in the middle of, this too shall pass, the sun will rise tomorrow, and whatever you're doing, if you got this job, you can probably get another one. So do you think that the universe, in a way, like tests you to see like if you're going to enforce those boundaries that you're setting out uh, to set, you know, with your prospects. And do you think that that is maybe where people run into trouble? Is there, they cave too easily? Yeah, I do. I, I don't know if the universe is testing us, but I know that human nature, human nature <laughs> is testing us. If somebody thinks they can get more from you for the same amount of money, you know, just by browbeating you a little bit or maybe, you know, a little bit of manipulative wording in an email. Of course they're going to do that. It's incumbent upon us to be adults, to be professionals, and just operate the same way we would expect uh, our auto mechanic or our doctor or our attorney to operate. These are the parameters in which I do business. The thing you're asking for is outside those parameters, judgment call, am I willing to do it for a little extra money or am I not? And if not, then am I willing to just not do business with this person, period? That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. And it took me probably six, eight years of freelancing before I came to a place where I truly made peace with the idea that not every client was, was suited to me. And maybe I wasn't suited to every client. My ego doesn't like that idea. But it's absolutely true. And so I had to decide what kind of a life I wanted to have, not just kind of what kind of a business. Do I want to have the kind of life where people treat me like I'm at their beck and call for low wages and they only pay if they feel like it, if they're in the mood, on every other alternating Tuesday of the month, and uh, you know, just all the other nightmare scenarios you find yourself in? And the answer was no. So I simply began saying no. When people would step over whatever boundaries I had set in the first place, I would educate them and I would kind of elucidate on, okay, look, this is the terms of the agreement that we agreed to work in. 
we need to do it this way because doing it this way makes for a better project. And then ultimately, when people weren't willing to do that, I had to become willing to cut them loose. And, and that was tough. It, it took a lot of work. But uh, I definitely think that if I were starting out now with kind of the wealth of freelancer tools that are out there, I'd probably be able to get savvy to this a lot faster, a lot faster. Uh, one last question before we kind of go into the uh, end here. But something I want to touch back with what you said before. When you said that a lot of, we give up a lot of power when we try and pander and we try and please people and try and get in their good graces. I think for a lot of free, you know, give me your thoughts on this. I think a lot of freelancers are used to being employees of other places and I think a lot of that customer is always right and uh, you know trying to please people to the point of harming ourselves comes from that and I think making the transition from going from being an employee to a business owner is kind of a tangential like you know shift in mindset what are your thoughts on that I think you hit it on the head we're very accustomed to for example I mentioned earlier that I, I work for a big uh, HR software company. We handle big Fortune 500. My job was to sit at my desk, and my boss would shovel work into my inbox, and I would execute on that work, and I would wait for praise. Gee, boss, did, did I do a good job? I would wait for the, you know, the, the accolades to come in from the client, and then some more work would get shoveled into my inbox, and I would dutifully go about shoveling it back out. This does not work as a consultant. If you want to be a contractor... Fine, because that's effectively the same thing. The only thing that changes is your tax form, W-2 or 1099. If you want to be a freelancer, the keyword here is free. A freelancer has agency, not an agency, but agency as an individual. Uh, a consultant, a consultant has agency as an individual. Our clients want us, they want us to stand tall and behave like professionals because it benefits their projects. They get a better return on investment when we do that. And none of the things that I've, I've advocated so far, just in case anybody construes them this way, should indicate that we need to be uh, belligerent or combative with our client. We just need to be firm about what it is we're here to do and the terms under which we're here to do it. And doing so is going to make things much better for everybody. So, so yeah, John, absolutely, absolutely. Bringing that employee mindset into the freelancing and consulting world, it's really going to limit you. And, and in a lot of cases, when somebody ends up washing out of that world after a year or two, it's because they never were able to let go of that mindset. And so effectively, they were trying to function as an employee doing consulting and freelancing work. It just doesn't just doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we like to close out these segments uh, with just asking about uh, some of your favorite uh, motivation or business books. Um, and you listed the charisma myth, uh, looking yes. out for number one, and people yes. wear... Tell us a little bit about each of those. Okay, the charisma myth is, uh, I'm not sure how new the book is, but it's new to me. It's by Olivia Fox Cabane. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing that right, Olivia. Um, and the title sounds very glib, the charisma myth, right? Anything having to do with charisma, it sounds like some smarmy sales stuff. But the book is really interesting. It's basically a way to break down charisma as uh, a set of psychological and mental hygiene skills. It's a mindset. It's a perspective. It's an attitude backed up by behaviors. It's not just some magical, pheromonal, born-with-it thing that oozes out of you. It's actually a set of habits. And as a, a dyed-in-the-wool geek, I found it really interesting to think, oh, well, wait a minute. So you mean I can actually hack my psychology? 
for greater charisma, to be more influential, to be more commanding when I'm dealing with clients, to engender more trust when I'm trying to close a deal. That sounds fantastic. It's This sounds so goofy. I, I almost hesitate to say it. That book is almost life-changing. It's, it's almost life-changing. If you've ever suffered with this feeling of disconnectedness or isolation, if you've ever suffered from the sense that you're not able to... Uh, impart a sense of power, a sense of trust, a sense of authority or competence with clients, with your friends, with whoever. Read this book. Goofy little little habits and, and mindset shifts and stuff, and, and it just, it's fantastic. It's not magic. It's, it's just work. It's a skill, just like development. Definitely check it out. What was the second one? <laughs> Looking out for number one. <laughs> Thank you. My diabetes medication messes with my memory a bit, so... Bear with me. Um, Looking Out for Number One is a very old book. It's by Robert Ringer. I believe it was originally written in the late 70s. And the title, God, it just sounds so 80s, doesn't it? Looking Out for Number One. And in some ways it is very, very go-go, very me, me, me. But if you boil the book away, again, it's a mental game book. It comes down to mental hygiene. It comes down to the idea of accepting that I am the most important person in my life. And I need to treat myself as though I'm important because that acts as a signaling factor, which then gets other people to treat me as though I am the most important person in my life. I am a person worthy of respect. Uh, Boundaries with clients, boundaries with friends, any kind of anything that's going on in your life, looking at for number one is just kind of a mindset that keeps you focused on the fact that this is my life, this is the only life I get, so if I want it to go the way that I want it to go, I need to behave in a certain way that's that's going to help me interact with people in such a way that, that they'll go along with that. You know, we all have to make deals on a daily basis with each other to make a way through life. So, fantastic book. It's maybe a little bit on the hard-nosed side for some people, but I, I dig that. So, what are you going to do? And then the last one is Peopleware. Oh, yep. my God, Peopleware. I'm sure you've read Peopleware, right? I have not. Oh, what are you killing me, John? You're killing me. Okay. Uh, Peopleware is kind of the... It's the, I hate to use the word seminal, but it's just, it is the book. If you want to understand how developers work best, the kind of conditions under which they work best, the way they communicate best, the way to run a project amongst software developers best, Peopleware is the book. Peopleware is the book that uh, some number of years ago, Joel Spolsky famously used to back up his case for building individual offices for every single developer at Fog Creek at a time when an open plan framework was kind of that, that kind of bullpen model yeah. that unfortunately still persists to this day. It, it, it delves into developer psychology and productivity. Anybody who's working in any kind of a capacity where they write any kind of code, uh, if you're a DBA, if you're one of those weirdos that uses Angular, if you're doing you know WP Dev or Big Iron Unix, you know Oracle systems, read this book if you haven't. It's it's one of those ones that's almost foundational in a lot of the things that we do these days but it's kind of been lost to time a little bit. Really valuable stuff. Really valuable stuff. I'll check it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, and, and lastly, uh, your three uh, success and leadership principles, uh, you listed ask lots of questions and care about answers, mm-hmm. uh, follow the money, and be kind when you can afford to be, and hard-hearted when you must. Tell me yes. a little bit. So asking okay. a lot of questions. Asking a lot of questions, especially in business, but, but even just making friends with people, getting along with, with human beings in life in general, which is a really important skill for getting by in business. 
asking a lot of questions gives you two things. Number one, it gives you a sense of connectedness and it gives you a frame of reference. For example, in my early example, when I was an employee, they shovel the work into my inbox, I build my widget, I set my widget on the conveyor belt, and then I watch it go out of sight. Well, as a consultant, it suddenly became incumbent upon me to say, wait, where did the raw materials from this widget come from? What kind of contractual terms were negotiated for those raw materials? Why is this person constructing the widget? Where does the widget go when it goes down the conveyor belt? To whom does it get sold? What does it get used for? So the, the idea behind asking lots of questions is just to have a more expansive world view. Uh, if you want to boil that down to micro, it's to have a more expansive project view. It's to have a more expansive view of how our clients do business, to understand why they make money and how and where it comes from and what that money is in aid of and how their operations work. Understanding the relationship between all the different pieces that go into making not just a development project, but the client of a development project. What goes into making a business model? The more we know about these things, and I know this is a little unnatural for a developer, but the more we know about these things, absolutely the more effectively we can behave as uh, freelancers, consultants, people who provide value to the entire business process. Uh, the second one was... Follow the money. Right. That's just good sense, man. There's a reason why there are so many people out there selling marketing information, right? Mm -hmm. That's got a very direct correlation to someone's ability to make money. Um, I think it was Rob Walling, don't quote me on this, but... I once heard somebody kind of classify things as there are, you know, vitamin project products, there are aspirin products, there are steroid products, and I think the same thing applies to services. If I'm just selling websites, okay, so what? What is that in aid of? Uh, well, I'm selling websites that specialize in lead generation. Oh, that's a little more interesting. Uh, I sell websites that are optimized for, you know, whatever, <laughs> converting opt-ins into sales. That's even more interesting. Um, I'm selling a subscription service that does X. Whatever we're doing, we need to find a way to tie it back to revenue. Even if you're doing something boring like maintenance program, even if you're doing something like the aforementioned uh, HR application for keeping track of OSHA violations in the workplace, mm -hmm. somehow, somewhere, our projects have a relationship to money as an outlay, as a savings, as a cost, as a revenue driver something and if we can't figure out how our projects relate to the flow of money within a, a client's organization we're gonna have a really tough time pitching budgets we're gonna have a really hard time closing deals we're gonna have a really hard time upselling additional work when it becomes available so being aware of that seeing where the money flows from where it flows to and how it interacts with our project really really vital and then I'm the last one about being kind when you can't afford to be being mm -hmm. hard-hearted when you must that all comes back down to boundaries again um, I like my clients. I have great clients. Ask me why. Ask me why. Why do you have great clients? Because I've fired all the rotten ones, okay? I like the people that I work with on a daily basis. I really do. And I'm happy to be kind to them. I'm, I'm happy to help them out. I do comp an hour here and there when I can help somebody out with something. I'll gladly take a look at something if it's acting weird no charge. It's the little things, right? You've got to be human with people. This is a business of human beings, human interactions, human relationships. But when someone's being transgressive, when somebody's stepping over lines, when somebody's pushing boundaries, that's when it's time to be hard-hearted and just say, no, that's mm -hmm. not okay. And it's not okay because these are the parameters in which we're doing business. 
it's really, really tough sometimes to find the path between the two. It's a narrow path, and it's not lit very brightly, and it's difficult to find. And sometimes we stumble around in the dark, and we bang our shins up until we find that balance of understanding where I can afford to be kind, where I can afford to be human, and where I have to kind of drop the hammer and say, no, that's not acceptable. It's very difficult, but uh, if it's a skill that you can master, it's absolutely worth its weight in gold. Oh, Fida, that was, uh, has been fantastic, Chris. I've actually got one quick ending question. Um, okay. um, you know, I, I think the um, the second half was really fascinating. Uh, what do you think is the importance of mentorship, especially for a developer where they're becoming a freelancer for the first time? Do you think finding somebody who they that can mentor them is going to make a big difference? You know, I do. I really do. Back in the early 2000s, my mentors were people that I just, I just read their blogs, right? And there really wasn't a whole lot of that going on. Um, nowadays, ooh, now you're really talking. We've got all sorts of membership sites. We've got email courses. We've got blogs. We've got you name it. I mean, I mean, hell, you can probably learn something useful just from following all the memes we have these days. And people are hungry for this kind of stuff. If I were a freelancer starting out, I would absolutely be drinking from the fire hose in terms of pulling all this great freelancing info off the Internet. Um, there's an important way to look at it. I, a long time ago in another life, I, I studied martial arts, and, and there was this whole thing about the, the black belt never washes his belt, right? Because over time of training and, 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 and being you know, just kind of worn down, the belt eventually turns white again signifying the whole you know, closed loop between you know, becoming a, a, a master and then returning to being a student, right? The idea of being constantly teachable. And I think that's really important for a new freelancer to keep, especially since there's so much to learn and there are so many ways to learn. I mentor some freelancers. I'm pretty sure John mentors some freelancers. Uh, I know that we've exchanged tips from time to time. He's mentored mm-hmm. me on stuff. I've mentored him on stuff. Yep. I, I've, got, I've got a couple of hundred students who have signed up for my Conquering Client Conflict email course. And I've had a couple of them email me and say, hey, Chris, what about this? Oh, well, well, wait a minute. I thought you were learning from me, and yet you just emailed me and dropped a great tip on me. You never know where you're going to find a piece of gold that you can plug into your business and, and, and make hay with it. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's a huge thing. If somebody can get a one-on-one relationship with somebody slightly ahead of them, great. If you can join a mastermind, fine. If you can't do any of that, read. We're geeks. We love to read. I know we do. Read. Uh, it, it's, it's really that simple sometimes. But, yes, it's absolutely, absolutely important to, to get some kind of mentoring from somewhere. Oh, was fantastic, Chris. So how can people, we're going to end the show now. I think it's been fascinating. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for coming on, Chris. So how can people, what's the best way for people to contact you? And is there any kind of product service that you would like to plug and tell our audience about? Well, your best bet, if you just want to keep up with me and what I'm doing on a daily basis, you can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore Hawk. If you, uh, <clears throat> if you want to follow my blog, uh, I send out articles regularly to my mailing list along with other tidbits like appearances on fine podcasts like this. <laughs> uh, you can find me at ChristopherHawkins.com. And then finally, if uh, for whatever reason you're a freelancer and you find yourself dealing with the kind of difficult clients that we've been talking about in this episode and you're not quite sure how to deal with them, you can join my free email course called Conquering Client Conflict. It's a 10-part course. I'll send you one email for 10 days, 
and I'll probably hit you up at the end to buy my book. Feel free to pass on it if you want to, but God's sake, sign up for the course. It's at ChristopherHawkins.com slash free dash course. And uh, I guarantee you won't regret signing up. Oh, I think I'm going to be signing up. Um, um, hey, so, um, John, how can people get hold of you and learn more about John Locke? Sure. Well, for, first off, I want to say to like definitely take that email course that, that Christopher that that um, is putting out there. It, it will teach you a lot. Um, but if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at my website, which is lockdowndesign.com. And if you want to follow my exploits on Twitter, you can follow me at lockdown underscore. Jonathan, how do the fine people get a hold of you? Well, um, fundamentally, the quickest way is either on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Jonathan Denwood. Um, professionally, LinkedIn, if you send me a LinkedIn message, um, I will reply. Or you can email me at jonathan at wp-tonic.com. And do remember, folks, we're a WordPress maintenance we do all the work so you can concentrate on building your online business. And there's only so many balls that you can juggle, folks, effectively. So we become your web maintenance, design, development people that are always there to help you. So, uh, Chris, thank you so much. I think it's been a great show. And we'll be doing our live panel tomorrow well um on saturday um we've got a fantastic panel and we're going to be talking about how to write effective proposals that will get the work the projects that you really are looking for kind of fits into what we've been discussing today folks we do that on blab at 10 a.m pacific standard time so you can join us ask us questions and we help people in the second hour so we do that every saturday so please join us and we'll see you next time on wp Todic. bye bye see ya.